Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 28 for August 31, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Ninety years ago, a border settlement put a large community of Kurds inside northern Iraq. Since 1991, that region has governed itself with various degrees of autonomy from Baghdad. And next month, the residents of the Kurdistan Regional Government, or KRG, will vote in a referendum on national independence. Iraqi Kurdistan is going to face the same challenges as some other states, uh, such as Israel, which is that it is a state that is built on the ethnicity of one particular group in Kurdistan's state, the Kurds, but it contains many other ethnic and sectarian segments other than the predominantly Sunni Iraqi Kurds. There are also huge numbers of Yazidi Christians, Turkmen, Kakais, Shabaks, and all the other uh, micro-minorities, as well as very large numbers of Iraq's dominant ethnicity, Arabs. Today, we'll speak with Institute Lafer Fellow Michael Knights, a close observer of Iraqi security and politics and a frequent visitor to Iraqi Kurdistan. We'll talk about the KRG's independence referendum, how it's reshaping Kurdish politics, what it means for the future of Iraq, and also what it's like to travel and do business in the highlands of Iraqi Kurdistan, one of the few places left in the world where it's safe to hitchhike. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. We're speaking today with Michael Knights, the Institute's Lafer Fellow, who specializes in the political and security affairs of Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and the Gulf Arab states. Mike has traveled extensively in Iraq, published widely on Kurdish political and economic issues for major media outlets, and briefed senior government and military officials on Iraqi affairs. He joins us today to discuss the upcoming independence referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan, where he's a frequent visitor and guest. Mike, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Thanks very much for having me. You are a frequent visitor to Iraqi Kurdistan and have been for a long time. Tell us what it's like to visit and to travel in Iraqi Kurdistan. Well, I would say Iraqi Kurdistan is one of the most breathtakingly beautiful and fun places that I've ever visited in the Middle East. I would recommend a visit to Iraqi Kurdistan for almost any person who likes adventure tourism or archaeology or hitchhiking. And that may seem a little odd considering that it's within the current territorial boundaries of Iraq. But Iraqi Kurdistan is completely different from the rest of Iraq. And I'm not denigrating Iraq when I say that because I love traveling in Iraq as well. Uh, But at the present time, it is certainly a lot safer to move around Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, I remember when I used to go to Yemen in the uh, early 2000s, and I would see European cyclists moving around Yemen, uh, going to archaeological sites. Iraqi Kurdistan is very much like that. Uh, it's, it's the way uh, parts of the Middle East used to be before 9-11. And um, it's a place where you can move around very freely as a foreigner. Uh, You can 
enter Kurdistan through an amazing modern world-class airport. Uh, for most Western countries, you don't need a visa. You move straight through immigration very quickly. Everyone in Kurdistan is extremely welcoming to you. You feel very safe and you are very safe uh, when you're within the core parts of Kurdistan that don't touch on federal Iraq. The mountains are amazing. The scenery is beautiful. The archaeology is fascinating. And the culture and the people are really welcoming, friendly, and fascinating. So I, I can't recommend Iraqi Kurdistan highly enough to people who want to go to some kind of different um, vacationing uh, destination. When you're working in Kurdistan, it's an, it's an incredibly open environment. Um, you can arrive in the country and very quickly make uh, contacts with the most senior um, political leaders and have very candid face-to-face -face discussions with them. I've been working in Iraqi Kurdistan for well over a decade. And, um, you know, it's really incredible how open the system is uh, to having quite candid political discussions uh, with the leadership about the challenges they face and the steps they should take next. There are some things that surprise people about Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, there are some basic things that people need to understand about Iraqi Kurdistan that may not come out of the mainstream media coverage. So the first is that uh, Iraqi Kurdistan is a multi-province part of the Iraqi state at the moment. It is the only multi-province regional government formed in Iraq since 2003. And what that means is that they have their own constitution, they have their own parliament, they have their own president, prime minister, cabinet, ministries, armed forces, uh, and laws. So they are essentially a entire mini-government that covers uh, about a quarter of the Iraqi state. And one of the reasons why they gained this special arrangement after 2003 is that they had essentially been running their own affairs all the way back to 1991 when Saddam's forces were ejected from Kurdistan at the end of the 1991 Gulf War. So they had already had 12 years of being largely independent with their own government, parliament, and with the UN sending 17% of Iraq's oil revenues to Kurdistan as Kurdistan's budget. So the Iraqi Kurds were essentially independent before 2003, and they chose as a favor to the United States to try a, an experiment at reintegrating with the Iraqi state after Saddam was removed in 2003. You recently contributed a chapter on Iraq to a study of Sykes-Picot's centennial. In that paper, you write, Iraq has been critiqued as an artificial state, largely due to its lack of ethno-sectarian homogeneity, and that the 1926 border settlement with Turkey that sealed part of the Kurdish people inside Iraq was the first and most controversial source of potential ethnic and sectarian division within Iraq. How did Kurds fare inside Iraq and deal with their demographic and geographic status within Iraq in the 20th century? So from the very beginning, the Kurdish tribes were viewed as a threat to the new Iraqi state. Kurdish tribes had often launched rebellions against 
the Ottomans and other forms of external government that were imposed upon them. And when the new Iraqi state was set up uh, under a centralized Arab-led government in Baghdad, the key threats uh, were the separatist Kurdish tribes in the north. As the power of the state grew in Iraq, the Kurds were subjected to increasingly effective suppression by the state. And this accelerated very much with the uh, growth of Iraq's oil wealth on two fronts. First, the state began to settle Arabs on some of the northern oil fields inside Iraq, particularly Kirkuk, particularly from the 1960s onwards. And secondly, the Iraqi state used its oil resources to build a military that was capable of fully occupying and garrisoning Kurdistan by the early 1970s. During the Iran-Iraq war, the Kurds fought against Saddam's army throughout the 1980s, and this was used by the Ba'athist regime as a trigger for the genocidal Anfal campaign that attempted to remove all Kurdish people from the rural areas of Iraqi Kurdistan and gather them together in concentration camps. So it's been a very bloody and long history of uh, resistance by Kurdish tribes against the centralized power uh, of the new Iraqi state in Baghdad. Right. And, and you've written that since the toppling of Saddam Hussein's regime, the centripetal forces that could tie Iraq's ethnic and religious factions together have been weakening even further. So what are those factors? Uh, what are the things that could help bind uh, the, the Kurdish nation to the uh, Iraqi state in a willing and, and voluntary sense? And, and what has weakened those factors? So Kurdistan and Arab majority Iraq are not a natural union, particularly not under a highly centralized government. The Kurdish tribes are quite autonomous by nature. Uh, the terrain of Iraqi Kurdistan has separated them from uh, the Arab lowlands and uh, from other uh, parts of the region, uh, including Iran, Turkey and Syria. They're quite a, uh, a standalone entity. And so the Kurdish state uh, needs a very loosely, a very loose connection to uh, Baghdad if it's going to stay within the Iraqi state. To give you a, um, uh, an insight into this, a lot of people don't understand that the Iraqi Kurds were essentially on their own from 1991 to 2003 after the Gulf War and uh, before the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the toppling of Saddam's regime. Between 1991 and 2003, the Iraqi Kurds were not occupied by Saddam Hussein anymore because they mounted an uprising that removed his forces in 1991. And then the no-fly zones uh, provided by the US, UK and France protected that Kurdish independent enclave. And so from 1991 to 2003, they built their own parliament, their own security forces. They had their own budget, uh, which was actually underpinned by the United Nations oil for food deal. They even had their own currency inside Iraqi Kurdistan. They used the old Swiss dinar, which was an old Iraqi uh, currency that was no longer used by the Saddam regime. Hmm. And so in 2003... They had experienced well over a decade of being essentially an independent state 
overseen by the United Nations. As a result, they needed uh, to be offered a very compelling deal to reunify with Iraq from 2003 onwards. And what they were looking for was a very loose confederal model with a very high level of administrative and fiscal decentralization. In other words, the ability to create their own laws, to control their own budgets. And this is what the Kurds uh, sought to get enshrined in the 2005 Iraqi constitution with U.S. backing. And that many of those uh, many of those principles of strong fiscal administrative decentralization were built into the 2005 Iraqi constitution specifically for Kurdistan. But there were two problems with this arrangement. The first was the Baghdad ultimately didn't want to decentralize to this extent. And they particularly did not want to negotiate the shifting of some of the disputed areas, such as Kirkuk, uh, into the Kurdistan regional government. The disputed areas being areas that are claimed by both the Kurdistan regional government, but also by Baghdad's central administration, because they contain a mixture of Kurdish and non-Kurdish populations. And the second problem is that the Kurds quickly realized that this experiment in reunification with Iraq since 2003 would probably not satisfy them. And in some senses, they regretted reunifying with Iraq after 2003. Hmm. And so instead, they wanted to push forward with state-like powers of their own. They wanted to develop and sell their own oil. They wanted to have their own foreign relations. They wanted to be able to buy weapons on the world market the way a state can. They wanted to control their airspace the way that a sovereign power can and to take out loans in the international community the way a state can undertake sovereign loans. So the idea of a reunified Iraq after 2003 uh, began to collapse uh, within the first 10 years of the post-Saddam period. So that's the that's the external relationship between Iraqi Kurdistan, the Kurdish regional government of the KRG and Baghdad. What about the internal or domestic political situation? Who are the main players within Iraqi Kurdistan? So Iraqi Kurdistan has two major party systems. And these political parties are very old fashioned uh, Eastern European style, socialist style political party systems that penetrate every level of life and the economy within Iraqi Kurdistan. One is the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, which is led by the Barzani clan. And one is the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, PUK which is led uh, loosely by the Talibani uh, family. Uh, the KDP is a very tribal-based political party. It is led by uh, Masoud Barzani, the president of the Kurdistan region, and the prime minister of the Kurdistan region, Netrim Barzani, uh, also comes from the KDP. The KDP controls the northwestern parts of Iraqi Kurdistan, like Erbil and Duhuk provinces. And it is uh, adjacent to the Turkish border and tends to have stronger relations with Turkey. 
the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, PUK, runs the area to the southeast, uh, in the southeast of Iraqi Kurdistan, including Suleimania, Halabja, and Garmian provinces. And they are adjacent to Iran. So they tend to have more historic relations with Iran, even though those relations are often quite tense. The PUK down in uh, Suleimania is more of a um, socialist political movement. Uh, it's based on students and party members uh, who resisted the, um, the Ba'athists and who broke away from uh, the KDP uh, during, the, uh, during the 70s. So those are the two main political parties. The other main party inside Kurdistan is a new movement that broke away from the PUK in the 2000s called the Garan movement, which means change in Kurdish. Garan is the first kind of reformist party inside the KRG. It's actually a movement, not a party. And uh, it is a mixture of some of the old guard from the PUK who broke away from their own political party for factional reasons and a lot of youth reformists who want quite a radical change to the system and maybe even the abandonment of these major all-powerful political parties. And the Garan movement uh, won the second largest uh, number of seats in the Kurdistan parliament in the 2013 Kurdistan parliamentary elections. Um, the KDP won the largest uh, group of seats and the PUK won the third largest group of seats. Mm. Well, the referendum that's planned for September 25 on the question of Kurdish independence is advisory rather than legislative. That is, Iraqi Kurdistan residents are not voting yes or no to declaring national independence right away. They're voting to express what eventual negotiated outcome they would prefer. So as a practical matter, how significant is the referendum? So the referendum will not change anything on the ground, as you point out. Uh, September 26th, the day after the planned referendum, is going to look and feel exactly like September 25th. It's almost like uh, Y2K, where everybody uh, was wondering if everything was going to change the day after. And then, uh, you know, January 1st, uh, 2000, uh, the sky had not fallen and uh, everything was the same. Um, but the referendum inside Kurdistan will have a few indirect effects. One of them is that it will probably allow the political, domestic political process inside Iraqi Kurdistan to move forward in some very positive ways. To generate the unity required to hold this referendum and uh, allow Kurds to express their demand for uh, self-determination in a kind of in a united way to generate strong nationalist feeling inside Kurdistan the political parties have been cooperating in a way that they have not cooperated for a number of years so the KDP the PUK and Garan have all been talking more frequently making political accords compromising with each other and also even taking the risk of upsetting their major external patrons and partners. So the KDP took the risk of upsetting Turkey by holding this referendum. Uh, 
and the PUK took the risk of upsetting its neighbour Iran by holding the referendum. And Goran has begun speaking to the KDP again after a period of historically bad relations uh, between uh, 2015 and the present day. And all of these parties have stood up to the United States uh, by holding the referendum. So in some ways, it has pushed the political parties and the Kurdish people a little closer together. Hmm. And that could be a very good thing when we move into the next set of Kurdish parliamentary elections, which are currently scheduled for November the 1st, 2017. And if we have a change of president inside Kurdistan, which uh, is now uh, about four years overdue. The presidency lapsed uh, in, uh, in 2013 and was extended by extraordinary measures for two years into 2015. Um, but, you know, this kind of referendum, which brings all the parties together and which uh, gives President Masoud Barzani uh, one of his key demands, which was to hold this referendum while he was still president, it, it allows perhaps Masoud Barzani to step down um, in the coming months or year and for uh, the contentious issue of the extended presidency uh, to be put to bed. Hmm. And that's a very good thing, I think, for Kurdistan's domestic politics. And internationally, this will provide a new fresh statement by the Kurdish people uh, that they are united in uh, calling for self-rule. Uh, and as, they, as Kurdistan negotiates some form of administrative and fiscal divorce from Baghdad, this referendum may be very useful in gathering support both inside Iraq but also uh, with the international community to oversee that effort with Baghdad and to try and move it forward as quickly as possible. You've been discussing the referendum as if the outcome is essentially a, uh, a, a done deal. What do you think uh, is the outcome going to be and, and, and how likely is it, uh, is it to come out? So the referendum is highly likely to be held on September the 25th. Uh, the Kurds have been very determined in their dealings with the government in Baghdad, the Turks, the Iranians, the United States and other international players that the vote is going to go ahead. And I have every expectation that the referendum will happen on September 25th. The vote is going to be held in a very wide places, not just the undisputed areas of Iraqi Kurdistan, the three main provinces, but also uh, in the kind of border areas uh, where Iraqi Kurdistan touches on federally controlled areas of Iraq, like Kirkuk and other, other uh, um, disputed areas. As a result, the referendum will give many non-Kurds the opportunity to vote. And what they're going to find is that they probably have a lower yes vote for Kurdish independence than they did, for instance, when they last held a plebiscite in 2005, when they received, uh, I think it was 98.9% voted yes. <laughs> On this occasion, we are likely to get a yes win in the referendum. 
but possibly by a margin that sits in the uh, 70s. Hmm. Some non-Kurds will vote no. Some young Kurds and reformist Kurds will vote no, partly as a protest vote. Uh, But whether it's in the 70s or the 80s, the Kurdish leadership is more focused on holding the vote than in gaining a kind of specific uh, number uh, for the yes campaign. Uh, They are pretty sure, and it's highly likely, that they're going to get well over 50%, because when a Kurd stands there in the ballot box and is asked, does he want an independent Kurdistan, uh, he's going to say yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if many of the non-Kurdish um, participants uh, inside the Kurdistan region also say yes, because ultimately they're part of a very successful and secure region um, within Iraq at the moment. And they may well want that prosperity and security to continue for themselves and their families. Um, so we'll all be watching what the outcome is. It's almost invariably going to be a yes. Um, but that's because the sentiment inside the Kurdistan region is predominantly in favor of um, their right to self-determination and their independence from Iraq. Looking ahead at the longer term, uh, the range of potential outcomes would seem to include uh, a number of options. One, something that maintains the status quo and muddles through. Uh, an option uh, may be to keep Iraqi Kurdistan within Iraq, but within increased local autonomy, uh, such as an American state or Canadian province enjoys. We could have an amicable divorce uh, akin to the separation of Slovakia and the Czech Republic from Czechoslovakia, or potentially a messy split leading to conflict like the wars that accompanied the, diver- the division of Yugoslavia. What do you see as the most probable outcome? The Iraqi and Kurdish states have slowly separated since the end of the 2000s. And the experiment of reunification has begun to drift apart over quite an extended period of time. And this is one possible outcome, and perhaps the most likely, which is that the Iraqi and Kurdish states continue to slowly drift apart without any kind of dramatic uh, new action being taken, and that Kurdistan slowly gains sovereign powers by the process of creating facts on the ground. And to give an example, um, about three years ago, the Kurds started independently selling their oil via the Turkish ports, and initially it was very controversial to buy Kurdish oil. And if you did it, you would try and disguise the fact that you were buying Kurdish oil in case Baghdad mounted a lawsuit against you. But now, three years later, the world's largest oil traders are openly buying Kurdish crude, uh, including Rosneft most recently, uh, which is the first uh, major state-owned oil company to directly buy oil from the Kurdistan region, seemingly without any fear of Baghdad acting against it. Hmm. So... The process of amicable divorce can either happen through settlement or it can happen because the parties do not talk to each other and continue to allow this gradual drift apart. One of the reasons why you could get a settlement without any form of agreement or negotiation is because the Kurds already physically control every area 
that they are claiming and want to continue administering in the long term. In other words, the front line is probably where it is going to stay for the long term. The aspects of statehood that the Kurdistan region does not currently have include things like the ability to control their own airspace, because Kurdish airspace is currently controlled by Baghdad through the International Civil Aviation Authority. Also, Kurdistan region cannot uh, take out sovereign loans in, um, in the world cattle markets because it can't issue a sovereign guarantee at this point. Likewise, the Kurdistan region cannot sign end-user certificates for weapons purchases uh, in the same way that uh, a state can. And uh, at the moment, the Kurdistan region uses the Iraqi dinar, though that could, of course, change in the future, as was the case between 1991 and 2003 when the Kurds were effectively independent. So there are some more issues that the Kurds would like to resolve, but territorially and in terms of their ability to sell oil on the international market and run their own economy, uh, they are most of the way there to statehood. Now, this is not the same as sitting at the United Nations and having full status as a state. And this is something that the Iraqi Kurds want. Hmm. They don't want to just muddle along as a strange in-between entity, not quite a state, but not part of Iraq either. They want to have their own passports, for instance, that say Kurdistan on it rather than Iraq. Because, for instance, Iraqi Kurds get a lot of problems um, moving around the world um, because they have Iraqi passports. And, you know, the security situation in Iraq is much worse than it is within the Kurdistan region. So they feel that even from a practical perspective, having the Iraqi passport, um, you know, doesn't really reflect where they come from. And then from a nationalist perspective, you know, they want to have a full state. They want to be in the UN. They want to have a passport. They mm. want to be able to borrow money and buy weapons and control their airspace and have their own currency, just like any other uh, state in the world. And, um, you know, so these are the, these are the things that they will be trying to negotiate. Now, the negotiation with Baghdad is going to be a very tricky one. And the reason is that even though most Iraqi politicians understand the Kurdistan region is essentially independent, and they understand that the Kurdistan region is never going to come back fully underneath Baghdad's control, no Iraqi politician wants to be in charge on the day that Iraq is split into two pieces. They don't want to be the prime minister, for instance, who presided over the breakup of Iraq. They want that to happen on somebody else's watch. And uh, as a result, there is this tendency to want to kick the can down the road uh, by another 10 years. So it happens under somebody else's watch. The negotiations between Baghdad and the Kurdistan region are also controversial because they have to deal with the disputed areas. And in these areas, like Kirkuk, like other parts of Iraq, like Aduz Hamatu, or northern Diyala province, there are real concrete issues that need to be resolved. For instance, areas that the Kurds currently control, where there are still tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of Arabs living within 
that Kurdish controlled area. And at the moment, those Arabs may not want to be part of Kurdistan. They might want to be under Baghdad's control. Or uh, alternatively, uh, the, um, the Kurds uh, may control pieces of critical infrastructure that Baghdad has not agreed to let go of yet. For instance, the Kukuk oil fields are completely controlled by the Kurds. And Baghdad may wish to negotiate some kind of uh, oil sharing solution uh, for the long term with regard to those Kukuk oil fields. So there are a lot of very thorny issues to be negotiated. And Baghdad tends to try and slow time these negotiations while the Kurds are always trying to speed them up. Should the United States have a preferred outcome or a preferred process on the question of Iraqi Kurdistan status? And what role should we play in what amounts to a, a dispute between two important American allies in the Middle East? That's a great question. And I would say this. The United States should have a preferred outcome uh, on the question of Iraqi Kurdistan status. But the outcome should be as follows. That two strong U.S. allies, Iraq and the Kurdistan region, have cooperative relationship with each other. The most important thing for American interests is that Iraq and the Kurdistan region have a strong cooperative relationship. And I'll give you one concrete example of why that's so important. When the Islamic State came back from the ashes between 2010 and 2014, the place where they regenerated the strongest and the fastest was on the fault line between Iraqi federal government and Kurdistan region areas of responsibility. The Islamic State exploited the gap between areas of responsibility of the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish security forces. And they were able to operate in this vacuum and rebuild their strength. Hmm. So if we want to work towards the lasting defeat of the Islamic State in Iraq, we need federal Iraq and Kurdistan to cooperate closely. So the preferred outcome of the United States should be that our two strong allies, Iraq and the Kurdistan region, have good cooperative relations. What role the U.S. should play is a different question. I think it's very important that the U.S. supports a strong internationally overseen process of negotiation between Baghdad and the Kurdistan region on the separation of sovereign powers. It's not up to the United States or other international actors whether Iraq and the Kurdistan region have a confederal state where they're part of the same state but have equal sovereignty or whether they split into two separate states or whether the Kurdistan region uh, remains as a very autonomous multi-province region within uh, current um, administrative setup in Iraq. We should not be pushing for any one specific administrative outcome. What the United States should be pushing for is that Kurdistan region and federal Iraq agree the terms of the amicable divorce and work together in the future on security, economic, trade and energy issues. Let me ask you one final question, uh, just because I've, I've seen that you've recently tweeted on the subject. Some Iraqi Kurdish leaders have suggested that an independent Kurdistan would need a new flag. What are your thoughts on the vexillological fallout of a referendum? 
Well, I must say I'm pleased to see the Iraqi Kurdish leadership talking about creating a flag that would incorporate themes from the non-Kurdish minorities inside Iraqi Kurdistan. This is a very good step in terms of forming a cohesive future state-like entity, reflecting the fact that it's not just Kurds living inside Iraqi Kurdistan or a possible future Iraqi Kurdish state. But uh, from a personal perspective, I really love the Kurdistan region's flag. It's one of the most uh, beautiful flags that you'll find anywhere. And um, I would be a little sad to see its clean lines added to uh, with many other different colors. But I think we all have to reflect, uh, you know, on the political uh, requirements here. The uh, Iraqi Kurdish state will not just be a Kurdish state. It'll be a state for Arabs, Christians, Turkmen, Yazidis, Kakai, Shabaks, and many other micro minorities. And so perhaps it's right that their flag should be reborn uh, to reflect uh, a broader constituency. We've been speaking with Michael Knights, the Institute's Lafer Fellow. He's traveled extensively in Iraq and published widely on Kurdish political and economic issues for major media outlets. Mike, thank you for joining us. Let's talk again after the Iraqi Kurdistan referendum. My pleasure. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.